to me, that's really motivating when someone tells me, hey, what you're learning here, hey, didn't that remind you of something we just heard on the news like last week? And I'm just like, whoa, if you're able to make those connections, then I'm hooked, like you got me. Like, so, so I love discovering those connections and helping students link their connections together as well. And so the landscape of cheating and academic dishonesty, like I said, is always going to evolve The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, Brad Garner. This is part two of our series with Carlton Fogg. If you didn't get a chance to catch part one, go back on the Digital to Learn podcast, listen in, check out the resources associated with the episode, like, share, and then join us for part two. Without further ado, we're going to jump right back in. How did you first get an awareness of feedback as an issue? Yeah, it actually was a combination of my undergraduate majors, actually, because I had double majored in psychology and linguistics, and I actually minored in in education. And I was really interested in kind of the psychology of language and how language and discourse is present in the classroom and how learning revolves around this kind of discourse. And the one area that I was thinking about was, wow, there's a lot of language in feedback, right? You get feedback on your work. And I was wondering about what is the discourse of feedback that students engage with? And what are the psychological factors around that? And so that helped me to kind of coalesce these different areas together to really focus in on, okay, the motivation and emotional factors associated with feedback and how does the language in feedback communicate these things? And so a lot of the work that I've done is with Dr. Uh, Diane Schallert, who recently retired from UT Austin, but she really helped me because she's a psycholinguist. And so she was able to really get me to think about, okay, what are the elements of feedback, both from a social, educational, and linguistic perspective that feeds into students' perspectives on feedback? So it's such a rich topic because there's really so much going on in terms of all of these different dimensions. And so I think the messy of it is kind of like attracted me to it, you know, <laughs> like these wicked problems are like, draw me in for better or for worse. I'm like, this is really complex. I kind of want to begin digging at this. You know what I mean? I'm not saying I have a comprehensive understanding of this. Oh my gosh, no feedback is, is so complex, but it's been neat to kind of chip away at, okay, does this factor matter? How so? And what if we think of it this way? Or what if we add this? Like, does that change things? Just, you know, chipping away at what I think is a pretty pretty dynamic and complex issue so Mm -hmm. quick follow-up question you shared 
the framework with the five dimensions. When you completed that study and released it, what did you discover in terms of where your research falls? Is there a certain dimension that hasn't been looked at that you're still wanting to explore? And have you realized that the majority of your research has fallen into one or more dimension? Like, what was that reflective process like? Yeah, that's really a really cool question. So I would say a lot of our research has focused more on questions two, three, and four. So the emotions piece, the can I do it? So like the self-efficacy competence piece, and then am I motivated to use the feedback, right? The value, the interest in feedback, but we haven't done as much in the overall like holistic meaning students are deriving from feedback as well as the social support and feedback and how the context really shapes the perception of feedback. And so one new study that we're working on now is looking at different majors because we realized, like I mentioned earlier, the field you're in, the domain you're working in, the feedback norms are going to be a little different and kind of the expectations of how feedback should be. And so one new study that we're going to be presenting this year at a conference is looking at just differences like, you know, the humanities, the arts, STEM, do those produce any meaningful differences in terms of how students perceive feedback to be? And so I would say that's kind of one way we're looking at context a little bit. I mean, the context is so complex and rich. And I think there are more ways we can look at context and social support. There's the rise of computerized feedback, and that's a really fascinating, interesting, automated feedback. Like, what is that doing socially? Like, is it perceived in the same way? Is it still conveying that social support that an instructor could have with their feedback. So I think there are questions there that are really fascinating to kind of dig into. There are questions about, you know, what are the racial ethnic differences, right? When it comes to perceiving the feedback giver, right? Like all of those dynamics, I would love to see kind of more work unearthing some of those insights. So I would say we've done more work in in some of the emotional motivational spaces, but I would like to see more stuff kind of done in the social contextual spaces. So, Awesome. I knew you thought about it. So I figured you might as well share it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. There's a 2021 piece on at least one that I'm aware of on constructive feedback. And the term is used a lot, undergraduates mastery goal orientation. Can you explain that concept for us and unpack what it means to you and your work? Of course. Yeah. So um, mastery goal orientation is one approach students can have towards their learning. And so it's it's often contrasted with more of a performance goal orientation. And so mastery goal orientations are really focused on trying to develop competence. And so your goal, your aim is more focused on, am I learning? Am I gaining knowledge? Am I developing a mastery about what I'm engaging in? And that's in contrast to a performance goal orientation where you might be more focused on getting good grades or 
being impressive in front of your peers or your teachers. And so you're more oriented towards demonstrating your competence rather than developing your competence, which is more of a mastery goal approach. And so we were interested in, okay, so students may vary on these different goal orientations. So depending on the goal orientation, they most highly identify with, how would they view constructive feedback differently depending on the type of goals that they have for learning? What did you find? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we were actually kind of surprised by this finding. And so we were really interested in kind of two dimensions of feedback. I mean, obviously there are many more to consider, but we thought based on our research on constructive feedback, Mm -hmm. two important features were how specific the feedback was, right? Because it has to be actionable and gave you kind of a clear pathway for your work to improve. And that was how we kind of defined specificity. But we also thought constructive feedback had to be friendly. And we thought, (laughs) we're trying to think of the word, like, is there a good word for this? And we're like, I guess friendliness is kind of the best way. But Friendliness is kind of a combination of like how positive the feedback was. So like giving praise and like pointing out the good things, you know, I I think we often hear like feedback sandwich, like you should start with something good and then kind of sneak in the critical part and then like end with something positive. Right. And so we wanted to think of, okay, the inclusion of praise, but also the language, Language can be phrased like more politely, more like autonomy supportive instead of you should fix this. You could phrase it as a question like, oh, can this section of your assignment be improved by adding la 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 la, right? So we can phrase our feedback in kind of more friendly ways and more unfriendly ways. And so we were thinking about these two dimensions, specificity and friendliness. And what was really interesting was those students that had a high mastery goal orientation, they didn't like the friendliness. They rated feedback statements that were high on friendliness as less constructive. And so we thought that was really surprising because we're like, who doesn't like some nice feedback? Like you would think everyone kind of has this default inclination to want friendliness and positivity. But the way we were thinking about this finding was if you're really mastery oriented, then sometimes the friendliness kind of gets in the way. It kind of feels like fluff, like, okay, I don't need to know the parts you liked. I don't need to know the things I did well. I really want to learn. I really want to keep growing and keep developing mastery. And so I want to get to the meat to get to the heart of the matter and all this other stuff kind of feels like fluff. And we actually did some focus groups kind of around the same time we did the study. And interestingly, students kind of brought this up and they were like, sometimes that feedback is like sugarcoating. They're like, we don't need that. Like we just really want to improve and learn. And, and so we were like, wow, these are what must be going on in the minds of really mastery oriented students. Like they are just really focused on improving their work and, some of these other things might signal, am I learning? Have I learned enough? Like when they get too much praise. And so we just thought this was a really unique finding that things are complex, right? We think our feedback is 
one size fits all. Like, let me get the perfect formula for crafting my feedback. And it's going to be constructive and amazing for everyone. And once again, we're muddying the waters a bit, right? We're saying, well, it's complex. Depending on students' motivational dispositions or approaches, they're going to have their preferences. Like they're going to weigh things differently in the formula of what makes feedback most effective. So we thought that was a really neat kind of nuance that we need to keep in mind that students, depending on their motivational orientations, they're going to see things differently. So I wonder if part of that friendliness rubric has to do with relationships with the faculty, because sometimes you'll have faculty members who are purposefully remote, put themselves up on a pedestal, and strive to impress their students how smart they are. Then at the other end of the continuum, you'll have faculty who equally competent in the discipline and all those things, but are much more friendly, approachable, kind, want to be in relationship with the students. And do those two ends of the continuum affect how people respond to feedback? Yeah, I think that social dimension, like I said, we really want to dig into that. Like we know it's going to be so important. And we also thought the friendliness dimension also kind of depends on, yeah, their view of the instructor too. Like, because what if the instructor never says positive things, but when they finally say that one positive thing, you're just like, oh my gosh, that (laughs) meant so much. Like this is the first praise I've ever gotten from my (laughs) professor, right? Versus someone who just kind of doles it out, yeah, yeah, like, you know? And so we also want to underscore like the authenticity, right? Yeah. Where that praise is coming from. So once again, it's multi-layered, like it's going to depend on, on a lot of factors and we get a lot of that richness. You know, most of my work is mostly quantitative and we mostly use surveys and things like that. But when we do the interviews and the focus groups, we get so much nuance from, well, Mm -hmm. this works most of the time, Mm -hmm. but, and it's always the things after the but where it's like, oh yeah, like that situation (laughs) is different. And we kind of get that. Right. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of our studies actually come out of the focus groups because we're like, that situation is really interesting. Can we replicate that in a quantitative study or can we kind of dig into that more, right? Because that is a really interesting nuance that we want to kind of get deeper with. And so your questions are spot on. So, So I want you to make some predictions. What will be happening in higher education in the next 10 years? Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, this was the question I like didn't have any notes on. I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to say. (laughs) Um, I I do think distance learning or whatever term you want to use, online education, remote education, I think we're going to see an infusion of that throughout higher ed. I'm even thinking kind of more at the graduate level as well, I think with different enrollment pressures and what we experienced with COVID, I think something in the online world is going to change in terms of how we think about education. 
I also think higher education is really going to evolve in terms of its relevance to the workforce. I think this was beginning to happen kind of in the last decade, thinking about curriculum reform, thinking about alignment with what students are learning, with what they're actually going to be using in their jobs, you know, after college. So I think that's going to continually evolve. Like we're going to rethink what is the traditional undergraduate education in terms of more of a kind of a technical workforce-based curriculum. And so I think we're going to start seeing alignment there. And I know all of these things that I'm mentioning have like different political tensions kind of either way. And so depending on how things go, I think in society's perception of higher ed, like all of that's kind of nested within that. And then I would say a third trend or a third dimension that I was thinking about is higher ed as a space for belonging. I think that's been something that's, once again, has been developing quite vigorously over the last decade or so. And and I would say that's going to increase over the next 10 years is will students belong in whatever pathway through higher ed they find themselves in? And I think institutions are going to be grappling with that quite extensively, I would say, for the next 10 years. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think that's going to be kind of on their radar. Those are just three disparate thoughts. And I don't know. We'll see. Well, just so you know, we write these down. And 10 years from today, we're going to post on social media. Do you believe what Carlton Fong predicted? Oh, wow. That, that's cool. <laughs> it's like the Simpsons where they like predict the thing. Like, that's cool. <laughs> oh, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. And all the things that Tiffany said about you are so true. You're awesome. Yay. Well, thank you. Wow. This has been really refreshing for us. We're recording this at a time, as you know, when ChatGPT and all these different AI technologies, even VR, XR, AR, it's, it's exciting, but it's flooding the news space in education. And so it was important to us to kind of get back to the basics. And yet it's not the basics. There is new findings and new happenings, exciting research going on at the core of curriculum and teaching and, you know, what better of a person to come join the conversation and rebuild the hype there too than you. So thanks for doing that for us. So you have a compelling piece about motivation and student cheating. Tell us about the relationship between motivation and student cheating and what implications, if any, there are for the AI and chat GPT questions that are surrounding educators these days. Yeah, this is, like you said, has been flooding the news and been on the top of minds of educators and administrators and engineering. Yo, this was a study done by my dissertation student. And this was her dissertation actually looking at some of the motivational factors that are associated with cheating. And it was motivations for learning, right? And so it was like the things like I talked about 
earlier, like mastery goal orientations or like performance goal orientations or how efficacious they felt or how autonomous they felt while learning. And we actually found some pretty interesting correlations with their different motivations and with cheating. And maybe unsurprisingly, when students felt like they were in a mastery-oriented learning environment, and so instructors were emphasizing how much competence they were gaining rather than how much competence they were demonstrating, right? Like really grade-focused the more learning focused they were, students cheated less. And so the more autonomous they felt, right? The more like they could choose different learning topics and different learning activities. And when they saw connections with what they were learning and their future, like this is important for my future goals, or this is useful, like this is connected to some pretty meaningful stuff in society. Like when they saw those connections, they also cheated less. And so I know there's a lot of worry and a lot of focus on detecting cheating and preventing cheating. And and I think those have their place. And I think those have some utility, obviously. But for us, what we were wanting to underscore is if you have some good teaching, like motivating teaching, that's helping students develop competence and interest and autonomy and value in what they're learning, they're going to not be inclined to cheat as much, right? And so part of what I've been thinking about all the new technologies out there with ChatGPT is if you're really focused on learning and getting students to learn and see the value in it, they're going to be less inclined to take these shortcuts and want to cheat. And so rather than thinking of what's the next technology that's going to help prevent the newest technology and, you know, technology is always going to evolve and it's evolved even over the last like six months, right? The fact that new technology is happening is never going to change. Like it's always happening, right? So what can we focus on that, is at the core of the issue. And I think if we actually have authentic, interesting, motivationally supportive environments for students, then whatever technology is out there, I don't think they're going to be using it for nefarious purposes, right? Like I think they're going to be grounded in a more authentic learning experience if instructors and campuses are going to help create those spaces. And and so, so that's kind of been my 30K view of the whole thing. Let's get to the fundamentals again of teaching and learning. And hopefully some of the trends and fads out there won't, won't pose as big of an issue. And maybe I'm just an optimist, you know, and, and think of these positive ways of of learning and teaching, but but that's kind of what the research has kind of showed us and kind of how I want to frame some of these new AI-based tools out there. So, And when you think about faculty, they have been steeped in their discipline for years and over that time have figured out the connections between the various pieces of their discipline. So they know how point A connects with point B. But when they're teaching, 
they don't necessarily share those relevance connections with their students. Yep. They just say, okay, next week we're going to do chapter seven without any way of connecting those dots. Exactly. Yeah. So making those things explicit and creating connections, not only within the discipline, but outside the discipline, like to me, that's, to me, that's really motivating when someone tells me, Hey, what you're learning here. Hey, didn't that remind you of something we just heard on the news like last week? And I'm just like, Whoa, you're able to make those connections. Then I'm hooked. Like you got me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So I love discovering those connections and helping students link their connections together as well. And so the landscape of cheating and academic dishonesty, like I said, is always going to evolve. And what I think instructors can focus on is, okay, what's the psychology of learning and teaching and focusing on good pedagogy and good instruction? I think the fray of all the noise of technology, yeah, it's going to be there. And I'm not saying we should not be worried, but for me, I want to major on the majors and kind of let everything else kind of fall into place, if that makes sense. You were in great company here. I'll say that. (laughs) We couldn't have said it better. So, hey, thank you so much for your willingness to join. And we have so many links to share. This may be the record in 180 episodes. I think that's what we'll have when this one releases. It might be the record of the longest list of resources (laughs) to follow. So I'm pretty excited to get those out there. But thanks again. Thanks, Carlton. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, Give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.